Uh, one of my favorite stories is of a husband and wife who were celebrating their 50th year anniversary. Uh, and, you know, the family and friends came together. This was before COVID-19, right? All those restrictions. And uh, they threw a big party for them. And they celebrated all day into the evening. And, you know, the husband, he was just so overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving for all that was done for him. And he wanted to take a moment to express how much his wife meant to him. His wife of 50 years, how much he admired her and so he stood up and he got everyone's attention and he raised his glass. And he said, as he turned to his wife, uh, sweetheart, in the last 50 years of marriage, I found you to be tried and true. Everyone smiled in approval except for his wife because she had become hard of hearing. And uh, he said again, sweetheart, in the 50 years that we've been married, I found you to be tried and true, the wife shot back quickly. Well, let me tell you something. In 50 years, I'm tired of you, too. <laughs> uh, this morning, I want to take some time to talk about conflict and what it looks like to resolve it in a godly and, and biblical manner. Uh, we're going to focus in on James chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses together. Uh, as you turn your, there in your Bibles, as we've been walking through James, we've been looking at the marks of a spiritually mature believer. In chapter 3, we, we talked about uh, the mark of taming the tongue. If Jesus is Lord of our life, shouldn't he be Lord of our lips? We've talked about the mark of godly wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom. Well, this morning, we're going to take some time to talk about... Uh, some ways that God guides and directs us to resolve conflict when it arises. Uh, you could take some of these principles and apply it to many different kinds of relationships, but our focus in God's Word today is on ch the church. When conflicts arise within the church, what are some ways we are called to resolve it in a godly and biblical manner? So as we read uh, James 4, would you stand in honor of the reading of the Word together? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, and yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord, and you may be seated in the presence of God this morning. I mean, as we read that, throughout the letter, James calls these believers, his readers, brethren six times already, and beloved brethren three times, and 
And uh, now he has some choice words for them. And there's a reason, as we're going to dig into the text today, is because God takes disagreement and disunity in the church seriously. Because God takes it seriously, we are called to do so as well. Now, as we dig into the text, James gives us some instructions for uh, how to walk in that unity in, in ways that we deal with conflict in a biblical manner. Uh, in the first three verses, we're going to talk about examination. In verses 4 to 6, we're going to talk about accountability. And then in verses 7 to 10, we'll talk about repentance. Uh, so let's begin, and as we dig through the text, look at examination. How do we deal with conflict when it arises? By examination. Uh, in the first three verses, James really paints us that picture. In the first verse, he presents us this question of examination. He does this often throughout the, the letter. We've talked a little bit about it already. Um, uh, he, in chapter 2, verse 14, he asked them to examine their faith. You know? uh, what profit is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? He asked them uh, to examine their wisdom, as we talked about uh, before. You know, do they have godly wisdom? Who, who is wise and understanding among you? And once again, he asked this question of examination. He asked them the source of their conflicts. Where do wars and fights come from? And the question that James presents is, uh, usually a rhetorical one, and for the most part, we think a rhetorical question is going to be answered. We don't have to answer it, but James wants us to answer that question this morning. Where do wars, where do fights, where do quarrels and, and disagreements come from? Uh, to help us answer that question, I just want to look at three assumptions concerning, or three, three observations concerning this question. And the first one is the assumption of the question. It's, it's the idea that the readers are aware of the fact that there is conflict within the church. There are those within the church who just can't get along. Why can't we all just get along? And the assumption is that these believers are aware of it. And unfortunately, as churches, sometimes Baptists, we're known for what uh, um, causes uh, uh, splits and that what causes disunity rather than what binds us together in our faith. You know, it reminds me of uh, the man who was on that island and he was lost on an island for a long amount of time and a rescuer came to visit and when he saw and visited him, he, he took him away and he said, hey, I just was curious what those three huts were that you had uh, on the island. And the man said, well, the first one, that's my house. He said, what about the second one? That's my church. He said, well, what about the third one? Well, that's the church I used to <laughs> Too many times we're known for what divides us rather than what unites us, and often those things are the cause not of holiness and godliness, but non-essential issues that we see divide us and cause, causes battles, wars, quarrels, and conflict. So the assumption is that the believers are aware that there are times when we just don't get along. So how does he describe conflict here? He describes it in a couple of ways. He describes them as wars, and he describes them as fights. Now, in the New King James, that's the translation. In your translation, you might see quarrels. You might see conflict. But the New King James really, really captures the Greek here because we're talking about wars, as the Greek reflects, and fights and quarrels among the believers. 
Now, there's a difference between a disagreement and an all-out war and battle. We can all disagree. Uh, sometimes it's because of miscommunication. Uh, sometimes it's because of other things. But a disagreement, what will happen is it will begin to evolve, if not dealt with, in the proper way. You consider Matthew 18. We're called to confront a brother or sister in Christ that we might have a difference with. We should talk to them directly. But sometimes, instead of speaking directly to the person, whispers go around. And we talk to other people. And that disagreement begins to evolve and people begin to take sides. As people begin to take sides, no longer do you have what's characteristic of a church. You have a full-out war. You have fights going on. And people take this side. Other people take that side. When the reality is we are called to deal with disagreements when they come, not so that they evolve into wars and fights and quarrels, but rather disagreements that can be dealt with in a godly and uh, faithful manner as we serve God. The third thing I want us to consider in the question is the purpose. Why does James ask, where do uh, wars and fights come from? The reason he asked this question is for us to discern our spiritual maturity. Whether or not we are spiritual mature or whether we may have some ways to grow. Uh, and the reason is in a moment he's going to say, as he answers the question for us, they come from our own sinful desires for pleasure in our hearts. And so the mark of spiritual maturity is one who can take responsibility for their part that they play. Now, often we say, where do fights and, 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 and wars come from? Where does conflict arise? Well, it's that other person. <laughs> he or she's the issue, and sometimes they are. 90% of the problem may be caused by them, but God wants us to take accountability. Even if it's 10%, even if it's 0.001%, I'm going to take responsibility for the part that I've played in this disagreement and then as I get right before God and seek unity in the church, I'm going to allow God to work on their hearts. I'm not going to worry about them. I'm going to allow God to deal with them. So some of us this morning would say, well, I've got a ways to grow. All of us do. That's why he asks these questions. That's why he talks about it. We are called to spiritual maturity and not just to point fingers or to play the blame game. But to take responsibility, what part do I play? And that can be applied to our other relationships as well, in a marriage. I'm not here to fight and say that this is my side and you're 90% of the problem, I'm just 10%. Fix yourself and everything else will be fixed. But it's taking responsibility, doing my part, and holding one another accountable as we honor God in these things. So we get this question of examination. What is the source of conflict? Among us, why can't we all just get along? Well, James gives us the answer. He says, where do they come from? In verse 1, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Uh, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The problem, the root issue here is our own hearts. It's not to look externally to point fingers or to blame others, but to take responsibility for our own sin. You know, in, in uh, James chapter 1, he talks about temptation and how to resist it. And some people were blaming God. They're saying, God, uh, I'm tempted by this because you're, you're at fault, but God doesn't tempt nor can be tempted. The source of temptation is our own sinful desires that we allow to deceive us. 
that ultimately cause, when they're fully grown, birth into disobedience and ultimately lead to death. And so here we see the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. There are sinful desires in each of our hearts for pleasures that lead us astray. How do those sinful desires for pleasure express themselves? Well, James tells us in verse 2. He says, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Oh, James is... He's not, he's not being very seeker-sensitive here. He is, I mean, being straight up. He's confronting the issues. He's calling out these believers. And I want to remind you, these are indeed believers who find themselves having trouble getting along. Why can't we all just get along? James says it's our hearts. And those sinful desires in our hearts for pleasures express themselves first in you lust and you do not have. Uh, lust refers to desires for things that are outside of God's will and God's word. We desire things that are not good for us, and ultimately those desires express themselves in, in, in conflict eventually because they are selfish. They're me-centered. I'm not interested in what's best for the relationship, the marriage, the church, or the community. I'm interested in what's best for me. And that ultimately causes conflict. You lust. And you do not have, you murder. Oh, are there people killing each other in the church? I mean, now we're getting pretty serious. But when James is thinking of murder, murder is the ultimate expression of hate. Now, when you consider the first disagreement in Scripture with Cain and Abel, how did Cain deal with Abel who gave a better sacrifice before the Lord and he was jealous of it? He didn't get right before God and say, God, hey, how can I do better? How can I sacrifice uh, the way that Abel did. No, he goes and he kills his brother. Uh, hate and the desire within our hearts will ultimately express itself in murder, and if it goes unchecked, of course, it can get to that point. No one goes out and says, if you talk to anybody who's gone out and lost control and took a life, they, they don't just say, well, I just made this decision. Well, sometimes you have psychopaths. But in general, it's, it's something that evolves. It's a hatred that evolves and finds its ultimate expression in murder. So hate is a sinful desire, and then covetousness, wanting what I can't have, looking at my neighbor and wanting what they have, and that can cause me to, to experience conflict in my relationships. Why do they have peace and, and I don't? Why are they so blessed, and, and why is their family in this capacity being blessed and walking in the way of the Lord and mine is not? And there are all these challenges that I'm facing that they're not, and covetousness can express itself in conflict. So we get to see how it expresses itself. You um, lust and do not have and murder and covet, but cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You allow those disagreements to evolve. You take sides, you, you, uh, you gossip instead of dealing with it head on. And so James is confronting these things. But I don't want you to miss this because it says you lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet, but you do not obtain. And it's the greatest lie of the enemy that if you seek to fulfill the lust of the flesh and seek to pursue the pleasures of this world that you will ever find lasting satisfaction. 
It's this idea that you can pursue the temporal pleasures of this world all that you want, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, but you will never experience the eternal satisfaction that God offers in Jesus Christ. So you can lust all you want, but you won't get what you so long for. You can murder and covet and do it your way, but you will never obtain the satisfaction that your soul longs for. You know, it says in, in, I think, Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in each of our hearts. We can never find lasting satisfaction outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. So we get to see how all these ways these sinful desires express themselves, but then at the end of verse 2, into verse 3, we see that they also express themselves in our prayer life in our lack of our prayer life or the motives which we have in our prayer lives. The reason you don't have is because you don't ask. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a disagreement with somebody, or I'm upset and uh, I, I have a, uh, it, it may not be going well, the first place I don't na naturally think in my mind to go is before God in prayer. Well, as a Christian I should, right? But when you're heated in the moment, you have a disagreement, my thing is that, okay, God, let me uh, take a break right now in our heated conversation. Let me go seek the Lord. Right now, I'm focused on how you just slandered me. I'm focused on how you spoke negatively about me, and so I'm ready to bite back. When uh, the reality is here, of course, we are called to pray. We're called to seek the Lord. We talked about it when we talked about the tongue. That made the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. That's not our automatic fleshly response, but it should be. And as spiritually mature believers, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, instead of avoiding prayer, we turn to it and we seek it out. And, and I think that's why it's so good to have different people in your life who can encourage you. You know, in the moment, you're just so heated, so overwhelmed by what someone said, and they say, well, what you, have you prayed about this? Has anyone ever told you that? And you're like, oh yeah, that'd be a good idea. I am a Christian and all. I am a believer. But that's not our automatic response because of our sinful desires, our selfish ambition, our, our, our bitter jealousy that sometimes is present in our hearts. So it expresses itself in our prayer lives with a lack of prayer life, but also in our motives. Some people might say, well, I do pray, but God still doesn't answer my prayers. Well, verse 3 James confronts that. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You've got the wrong motives in your heart that you may spend it on your pleasures. So it matters the content of our prayers. We don't just pray anything. We pray the will of God. That's why I think it's important to combine reading God's word with prayer. I don't just pray my wants and my desires and my needs. But I pray the will of God over my life. I think it's a healthy discipline when you pray or to ask God for things to tell him why you're asking. You know, is it because of my own selfish desires or do I really want to glorify God in this? Uh, what, what are my motives behind my prayer requests? And James calls them out and says, the reason you're not getting what you want, even though you pray, is because you ask amiss. The motives of your heart are wrong. Uh, and so the root of the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of 
the heart. Where do these wars and these fights come from? They come from my own heart. My own selfish desires. And so instead of pointing fingers, we should say, as a spiritually mature believer, I'm going to take responsibility for the part I've played. I'm going to turn to the Lord and, you know, I've had some bitterness in my heart. I have some resentment. I have unforgiveness. But I'm going to surrender it to the Lord and I'm going to seek out his will. Because that's where I find eternal satisfaction. You know, our fleshly desires would think we would be satisfied when we take a dagger and stab it in their back. Oh, revenge feels good. Well, for the moment. But when after it takes place, you still find yourself dissatisfied. You don't have that peace. And only that peace can be found in Jesus Christ. Surrendering all things to him and living in accordance with, your, with his will. Now, um, I, I was reading an article by Tom Rayner who made a list of silly things that churches have disagreed upon. He, he put out a survey, and I just wanted to read you some of the ones that I found. The first one is, uh, there was an argument, and these are actual arguments, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Well, Russell, we're good because, you know, no beard at all, so we're all right there. <laughs> there was a fight over whether to build a child's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. The church got into a big debate. Uh, oh, I like this one. One deacon called on another deacon and accused them of writing a, a letter that was anonymous, and so these two deacons decided to resolve the conflict in the church parking lot after church. <laughs> Um, another fight was over which picture to put of Jesus in the lobby. I wonder who took the picture. Um, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the potlucks. <laughs> uh, this one's an interesting one. Some church, uh, a church member in the church hit the vacuum, and it ultimately caused so much problem the church, the church split over this hidden vacuum. That's when disagreements evolved into wars. And then this is my, uh, my, the last one that I think we've experienced in the church I grew up in. A disagreement over using the term potluck or pot blessing because as churches we don't believe in luck. <laughs> when we were growing up, we called the potlucks pot providences. And so we went from that, that side of it. But you know, these are, we, we look at these and we kind of laugh a little bit, but these were disagreements that people actually took seriously. Some of you may be thinking, well, Pastor, I understand what you're saying here, but you don't understand the conflict I'm facing. It's pretty complex. You see, I've done some things, but that other person, if they would just fix their side of it, we could fix all of it. But James, through the Holy Spirit, what God is saying here is it's not as complex as you think. The root cause of the problem is you and me. If we will begin to allow God to change our hearts, we can watch God do magnificent things. You know, we should take God seriously. We should take our sin seriously. We should take holiness seriously. But let's not take ourselves so seriously. Let's take time to laugh at ourselves. Let's take time to overlook some things that sometimes people say about us for the sake of unity in the body of Christ for the sake of unity in our relationships that God blesses us and gives us. So the first way we deal with conflict in a biblical way is 
it's examination. Examine the source. And the spiritually mature believer will say, yeah, I'm always part of the problem. And there's a responsibility that I can take. And then the other side of it is saying, okay, God, help me to do my part, and then I'll pray for the other person. And watch what God does. Often, he does a work not just in your heart, but in the heart of the other person. So examination. Secondly, the manner in which we deal with conflict in a biblical way is that of accountability. Accountability. James, in the most choice words possible, holds these believers accountable. Once again, he is not a seeker-sensitive minister. He's not here to itch their ears. He's here to tell them like it is. He doesn't say all these sweet things, you know, every day is Friday. No, he says it as he needs to. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Now, James holds them accountable by giving them a few reminders, and I want to talk about those. These are helpful reminders for all of us, especially when we find ourselves in disagreements, conflicts of many kinds, inside or outside of the church. The first reminder is that you and I are the bride of Christ. We are part of the church, which is the bride of Jesus Christ. And that helps us understand verse 4, because he says this here. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why does he call them adulterers and adulteresses? These are not unbelievers, because an unbeliever can't be unfaithful to God in this sense as of adultery. Of course, God holds everybody accountable. We all are accountable before God. But he's speaking to believers who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Uh, we get a picture of what the world offers us in 1 John 2, 16-17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We are the bride of Christ. And we should, in light of that identity, live in honor of the bridegroom, in honor of Jesus Christ. You know, Ephesians 5, 22-33 talks about marriage, but what we read about there is that marriage is actually a picture, an illustration of Christ's relationship with the church. I want to read to you Ephesians 5, 25-27. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why did he save her? It says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present himself, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that which should be holy and without blemish. God saves us, and so people will say, well, I'm saved now, I can live however I want, because the more I sin, the more grace abounds. Romans 6, Paul says, may it never be. You've died to sin, why should you live any longer in it? And so we get to see a picture of God's love, and this reminder that, you know, ultimately we are the bride of Christ, and we stand accountable as a testimony of how we should reflect our God. We're his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we should reflect that. 
we should reflect his grace in our lives and the glory that he's given us. So that means I shouldn't walk in the ways of the world. I shouldn't allow selfish ambition and bitter jealousy to be and continue in my heart. If I have any bitterness, if I have any unforgiveness, if I have any resentment, it's not befitting of the bride of Christ. Christ desires to present me to himself as the body of Christ without blemish. And so my desire is that through this sanctification process, I look a little bit more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. And so we get to see the first reminder, we're the bride of Jesus Christ. Uh, the second reminder we find in verse 5, it says, Or do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The second reminder we see as we're held accountable before God is not only we're the bride of Christ, but the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is a jealous God. It says the Holy Spirit is jealous for us. We're not talking about a sinful jealousy. Of course, God cannot sin. We're talking about the kind of love that God shows us even when we are unfaithful. It's a commitment to his bride even when she is not. It's an undivided devotion for his people. So when we sin, we can know that Jesus is the type of God who has the heart of God where he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He is a jealous God. We get a picture of that in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. When you read that book, you read about a fascinating command given to a prophet of God. God goes to and goes, tells Hosea, hey, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Hosea's like, are you sure? Did I hear you right, Lord? And he says, yeah, go marry a prostitute. So he goes, marries this prostitute, and he takes care of her. He loves her and cares for her, desires to meet her needs in every way. And even as he's blessed her and provided for her needs, she goes off and goes and joins herself to those that she once did. And God says, this is a picture between me and Israel, who's joined themselves to the false gods around them. And God calls them back to himself. And he says, Hosea, I want you to continue to pursue her. I want you to continue to love her, even in her unfaithfulness, because it's a picture of my love for the unfaithful. Just as God was pictured as the bridegroom of Israel who was the bride, so the church as the, as the bride of Christ is pictured between the bridegroom. And he's a jealous God who pursues us and goes after us, even in our unfaithfulness. And so that should be a motivation for us to come back to him. When we've allowed things in our hearts that don't belong and he convicts our hearts, instead of continuing to hold on to selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, resentment, and anger, and hate, God wants us to let it go, pursue him again, because he pursues us. When you come into contact with the love of God, it forever changes your life, your perspective. When you really understand how deep your depravity and sin truly is, you realize how good God is, how much grace he's given. Those who have been forgiven much are those who love much. He reminds them of their accountability uh, by reminding them of this in verse 4. And then um, 
verse 5, and now in verse 6, he reminds them of his grace, but he gives more grace. Aren't you thankful for that? No matter how many times you fail God or how many times you go this way or that way, you allow things in your heart that don't belong, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is holding us accountable. He says, you are the bride of Christ. You serve and are married to a jealous God. And even in his jealousy, as he pursues you, he will always have open arms for you to come back to him. He's that kind of God. He's gracious and merciful. It says he resists the proud here. So instead of us saying, where do wars and fights come from? Not for me. Woe is me. I'm too good for that. They're a part of the problem. The devil, they can do it. Instead, saying, I take responsibility. And it says he gives grace to the humble. So I want to be a humble person. I want to recognize my sin. I want to expose myself before God and turn to him and receive this grace. We stand accountable before him. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, we were down in um, Sierra Vista and took the family out to the fancy restaurant called McDonald's. <laughs> the family, you can have anything you want on that menu. And so they were looking and we were, we were looking at what was on the menu and uh, there was a lady who walked in with a Happy Meal in her hand. She had gone through the drive-through, but let me tell you, she wasn't happy. <laughs> she walked in and she walked up to the person, the cashier, and she said, you're wasting my time and you're wasting your time because the toy that we got in this Happy Meal was not the one advertised. She explained to this man that the only reason she got the Happy Meal was for the specific toy. I don't know the background information behind it, but the cashier was so gracious. He, he listened to her. He didn't bite back at her. He took the toy because she said, I don't want this toy. And he said, okay, I'll take it back. And he said, thank you. And I, I thought to myself, why did he act that way? Well, maybe he's just a pretty cool, calm, and collected guy. <laughs> maybe it's because that's just his character. But I think more so it's because of his accountability. You know, the shirt that he wears and the hat that he wears bears the McDonald's Corporation insignia. And as a representative of McDonald's, he has the, the, the responsibility to exercise the values of the company, including customer service. I say that because we bear the name of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood has been shed for us. His body has been broken for us. So we don't live according to the values of this world. We don't allow selfish ambition and bitter jealousy to reside in our hearts. We don't allow unforgiveness, hate, and resentment to be present. We take conflict in the church seriously, and we should resolve it in a biblical manner because we don't live according to our fleshly desires, but according to the values of the kingdom of God. So we say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my relationships as it is in heaven, in my church as it is in heaven, in my marriage and in my family as it is in heaven, because I am not part of the kingdom of this world nor the values of this world, but part of the kingdom of God. So the second way 
God challenges us is through accountability. We're called to be accountable before God and recognize these things. And then lastly, how do we deal with conflict in a biblical manner? It's by means of repentance. Repentance. And 7 to 10 in this text gives us a beautiful picture of repentance. The word repentance literally means to change your mind. And a changed mind leads to a changed direction. I've been holding on to unforgiveness in my heart for five years, ten years, however long it's been, maybe a day. And it's saying, not anymore. Not in light of how much God has forgiven me, I can't hold on to forgiveness against them. I changed my mind. I changed my direction. And, and so we get a picture of that repentance. Verse 7, it says, therefore, submit to God. To submit to God means to align yourself under the authority of his rule. So when God says, uh, he who uh, loves much as he who has been forgiven much, I align myself under the umbrella of his authority, and I say, let your will be done. Even though it's not what I feel like in the moment, and I may forgive them now and then tomorrow, uh, those thoughts start to move again, I'm going to surrender again, I'm going to submit to God. And it's just a moment-by-moment -moment thing. That's what our relationship with Jesus is like. It's not a one-time come down the aisle and profess Jesus as Savior and Lord and everything's fixed. It's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day submission. Jesus, just as I walked down the aisle and made you Savior and Lord and declared you're Lord of my life forever and ever, today again, I'm going to make you my Savior and my Lord. I'm going to confess my sins on a daily basis. I'm going to align myself under the principles that you have set for me in your word day by day. Submit to God. And it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, what does that mean? Do we start binding the devil? Do you ever hear that? Remember when I was growing up, my daddy would always say, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. Is that what that's saying here? No, keep reading. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? By drawing near to God. And as you draw near to God, you realize that you don't have to do any binding. Jesus has already accomplished it on your behalf. When he went to the cross, he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. Satan is too great of a foe for us to overcome on our own, in our own ability and power. But we surrender that to the work of Jesus Christ. And so to resist the devil, knowing that he will flee from me, means that I draw myself closer to God. As I lean into him, he draws near to me. So don't worry about the devil. If you want to win the battle and win the fight every time, never get into the ring. When the devil comes knocking, you just get the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already won the victory. We don't fight to victory as believers. We fight from it. We've already won in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Draw near to God. And then it says in some strong words once again, how do we do that? Okay, he, call, he just calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Whoa, James, calm down here. <laughs> he's not, he's, he's given it the way they need it and we need it. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. What happened to brethren and beloved brethren? Now we're sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we're double-minded and sinners. 
Now, that's how we walk in repentance. That's how we draw near to God. We purify ourselves. We purify our hearts. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. We purify our hands in the way that we walk. God, may I walk in purity and love. May the way I love my wife reflect the way that you love the church. May the way that I love one another in the church and forgive one another and not hold on to resentment or anger or hate reflect the way that you do not hold on to it in relationship to me. The way that you satisfy the wrath of God against my sin through Jesus Christ. That's what it means that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Let's purify our walk. Let's cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts. And sometimes we just have to call it what it is. God, I am a sinner. God, in this case, I am double-minded. You know, uh, I'm praising you on Sunday, and then I find myself in a wrong, bad place on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. God, I, I want to have one mind. I want to surrender all of myself to you. I don't just want to give you 90% of my life and then 10% is, is mine. You know, after I get home from work, I, that's time for myself, you know, and, and I'm going to live how I want and do what I want. No, God gets it all. When you make him Lord of your life, you make him Lord over every part of it. Not just some of the words I say, but all of the words I say. You're double-minded. And then verse 9, it, it talks about the remorse we should have when it comes to our sin. It says, lament and mourn and weep. Let's feel bad for our sin. God, I'm broken over this. And in my brokenness, I'm thankful even more for your grace and your mercy and your compassion. We don't just turn to God because we got caught. We, we turn to God because we understand his love for us. And as we understand how it grieves the Holy Spirit, He's a jealous God, and we should mourn and lament and weep. God, I, I don't know why I went back to this this week, but I don't want to go back to it anymore. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. In other words, take sin seriously. Call it what it is. Repent of it. And then verse 10, this really sums it up for us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's repentance. It's coming to a place of, of recognizing the depths of my sin and my depravity. Understanding that as a believer, I'm being sanctified, I'm being transformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ day by day. And I'm hoping I look like Jesus more today than I did yesterday. But one day I will be glorified. I will have new desires. No longer will there be any more sin or pain or suffering. It will be no more. In heaven, that's what we long for and that's what we look forward to, but let's humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. God, maybe I do have a part to play, even if it's just 10%. Maybe, God, I am responsible in this area. Maybe I have been holding on to some stuff in my heart, and I've recognized it in the way that I relate with others, and maybe it's time for me to surrender and for me to let go. What would happen if believers and the church of Jesus Christ considered that question, where do wars and fights come from among you? From my own heart. From the depths of my heart. There are things that don't belong there. What would happen if we took responsibility? 
If we were held accountable and we said, yes, God, I'm part of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. What would happen if we took responsibility, we exercised accountability, and if we actually repented, we would see incredible unity. We would see the people of God be unified around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you know, in Acts 2, 42 to 47, when the church is doing what it's called to do, at the end of verse 47, it tells us that God added to the church daily. As we minister one to another, love one another, that love that we've received from God begins to well up in the church of God and then overflow into the community in magnificent and beautiful ways as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out in Bisbee and to the ends of the earth. That's the kind of people we want to be. And you know what kind of people are a unified people? They're not those who are bitter or upset or angry or have hatred. Or, have you ever met someone with unforgiveness in their heart? I mean, they're just not fun to be around. But joy just just overflows out of them. Uh, I'll just finish with this picture this morning. And uh, on Sundays now, before I wouldn't go with the family to church, I would go by myself and I'd prep some things at church. Uh, so now, as a family, we come to, to church here and on our way over, and then we go, and then we go to our next church and we uh, preach there. Uh, but it's really been a fun thing to go to church with your family. I actually drive there because of the, the, the excitement that's there uh, when you're there, because there's a joy about it. So I got home, because I, I went to pick up something at, at uh, the other church, and I came back home, and I got there, and I, these two little, one of them is playing doctor, she's got her little glasses on, and the other one is just, just making noises, similar to that, I mean, they're making noises, so excited and so happy, and I turned the mirror, and I said, why is that little girl so happy? She said, well, don't you know, today's the day of the Lord, and she's going to rejoice and be glad in it. When you see the joy of a child, isn't that the kind of joy that should emanate from us as believers? Isn't that the kind of joy that all of us should have as recipients of God's grace, his mercy and love? As we've been adopted into the body of Christ, may we be that kind of people who show that joy and that love in the same way that we have received it. Can we take a moment to pray? Now, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you do take uh, disunity, conflict, disorder, and chaos, confusion seriously. And we know that we should as well. We thank you, Father, that for the reminder, Lord, that uh, um, sometimes we need to come to a place of humility to seek you out, Father, and say, there are places in my heart that I'm holding on to something whether it be bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, unforgiveness, hate towards others, resentment. Father, we know these things shouldn't be. We know, Lord, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We don't want to have just one foot in the world and one foot in the church, Lord. We want to surrender all to you. So, Father, we do. The church body this morning, we just surrender to you everything. We pray, Lord, that you would create in us a new heart. Give us the desires for the things of the word, Lord, and let us, Father, function in response to that in our relationships. And, Father, may we receive the joy of the Lord. May it be our strength. May it be the thing that unites us, knowing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again in newness of life, that not only we would have relationship with you, but right relationship with one another. 
Father, I pray for those this morning who are thinking about certain relationships that are difficult right now, that seem very complex, and they're considering how you could bring unity to them. And Father, I just pray for your grace. I pray for your wisdom. I pray, Lord, that your word would, word would instruct them and guide them through these difficult times. Father, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, wants to make Jesus their Savior and their Lord, Father, I pray that they can express it in this prayer. Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I know that the wages of sin is death, an eternity without God and his people forever. But I know the gift of God is eternal life. Today I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord. I surrender all to him, and I desire to seek him all the days of my life. Father, we praise you and thank you for these things as we have a moment of invitation in this final hymn of invitation. We pray, Lord, that you would just lead us and allow us to surrender all things to you in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.